0: This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog. podcast on 17th century poetry, I pulled together almost all the verses I could find in English or English translation that spoke of love between women. For the 18th century, there was far more material, and I need to pick and choose a bit more. The major reason for that expansion is that women's writing was being preserved in larger quantities and in a wider variety of genres. But there was also a rise of popular themes that lend themselves to expressions of same-sex sentiment. The 17th-century poems sorted themselves out into some identifiable themes. The pangs of love, men jealous of women's love for each other, men appropriating lesbian imagery, satire and vituperation, and the triumph of love. The 18th-century material continues the larger themes, but with some shifts and expansions. One category that I've skipped over is translations or reworkings of classical material, such as the poetry of Sappho or mythic tales like Iphis and Ionthet. In general, I've covered those in episodes examining their specific topics. Right off the bat, it's clear that we need a new category: poems of romantic friendship. In the 17th century, we see the beginnings of this theme in the works of Catherine Phillips and other poets working in the Neoplatonic tradition. The 18th-century friendship poems are very similar in focusing on a spiritual love that presumes a union of souls, but not necessarily of bodies. The pangs of love may be expressed in this context, but First, let's hear some verses where those shadows don't fall. Anne Finch, the Countess of Winchelsea, began her poetic career in the Restoration era of the late 17th century, although the work I use here dates to 1713. Her work has something of a proto-feminist flavor, often commenting on the difficulties women encountered in the male-dominated literary establishment. Her work sometimes referenced that of other female poets, such as Catherine Phillips or Aphra Behn and like the work of Philip, she emphasizes the equality of men and women on a spiritual level. Finch was a maid of honor in the royal household and a companion of Sarah Churchill, whom you might remember from the episode on Queen Anne, and of Anne Killigrew, another poet whose work in the late 17th century included some poems suggestive of romantic feelings for women. Anne Finch's friendship poems are tender and passionate, but were written within the context of an amicable and loving marriage Her husband was a significant supporter of her poetic career. It's important to remember that one of the reasons romantic friendship was so openly acceptable was that it was not seen as inherently incompatible with loving relationships with, and marriage to, men. We mustn't interpret these poems as indicating an orientation in the modern sense, but as operating within an understanding that souls were what loved, and that the gender of souls could be immaterial. Practical considerations meant that the ways that love was expressed differed depending on the object of affection, and that women were perhaps more free to make public expression of the passionate feelings they had for their female friends, specifically because there was no inherent expectation of a sexual component. Like many of her contemporaries, Anne Finch used poetic noms de plume in her work for herself as well as for those her poems were addressed to. Finch was Ardelia, as in the following work, Friendship between Ophelia and Ardelia, from 1713, written in the form of a dialogue. Ophelia, the other voice in this poem, may be the as-yet-unidentified author from the same social circle of several poems also on themes of female friendship. In the poem, the alternation between Ardelia and Ophelia is identified with tags, but I'll distinguish them by voice. What friendship is, Ardelia shu, Tis to love, as I love you. This account, so short, though kind, suits not my inquiring mind. Therefore farther now repeat, what is friendship when complete? Tis to share all joy and grief. Tis to lend all due relief from the tongue, the heart, the hand. Tis to mortgage house and land before a friend be sold a slave. Tis to die upon a grave if a friend therein do lie. This, indeed, though carried high, this, though more than air was done, underneath the rolling sun, this has all been said before. Can Ardelia say no more? Words, indeed, no more can shew, but tis to love as I love you. Mary Chudley was part of the same intellectual circle as Mary Astle and Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who get frequent mention in blog entries about the 18th century. Chudley's work, both poetry and essays, focused on feminist themes. The negative attitudes towards marriage expressed in her work suggest her own may have been less than happy. The poems touching on female friendship invoke the image of an idyllic, rustic retreat, a popular theme continuing over from the Neoplatonic pastoral motifs of the later 17th century. I have to confess from my own reading of Chudley's work that her writing doesn't strike the ear as among the most eloquent of today's poets. One of the poems that I didn't use includes the couplet, "No, the loved darling of my heart will never, never, never part," and it's easy to imagine the author thinking, "Hmm, will never, dum the dum the part." Oh, well, I'll fix it in revisions. The poem I've chosen, "To Lorinda," from 1703, is a fairly typical expression of the themes of platonic love and friendship. Cease, dear Lorinda, cease admiring, why crowds and noise I disapprove. Whate'er I see abroad is tiring. Oh, let us to some cell remove, where all alone ourselves enjoying, enriched with innocence and peace, our noblest themes our thoughts employing. Let us our inward joys increase, and still the happy taste pursuing raise our love and friendship higher, and thus the sacred flames renewing in ecstasies of bliss expire. Similar idealized sentiments appear in the romantic friendship poems of Elizabeth Singer Rowe. Much of her poetry was religious in nature, and this may account for the motif that the greatest joy of friendship is a spiritual reunion after death, as in this verse To Cleone, published in a posthumous volume in 1739 from the bright realms and happy fields above the seats of pleasure and immortal love where joys no more on airy chance depend all health to thee from those gay climes i send for thee my tender passion is the same nor death itself has quenched the noble flame for charms like thine forever fix the mind and with eternal obligations bind and when kind fate shall my cleone free from the dull fetters of mortality i'll meet thy parting soul and guide my fair in triumph through the lightsome fields of air Till thou shalt gain the blissful seats and bowers and shining plains decked with unfading flowers. Their nobler heights our friendship shall improve, for flames like ours bright spirits feel above, and tune their golden harps to the soft notes of love. The sacred subject swells each heavenly breast, and in their looks its transports are expressed. How do we define the dividing line between close friendships and a more particular exclusive relationship? or at least the desire for one. One hint may come when jealousy or feelings of abandonment define the nature of a bond by its absence. I explore that theme a bit more in a later group of poems, but here in Elizabeth Thomas's "To Clemena," we see the rise and fall of emotions, thinking that an intimate friend may have transferred affections to another. Thomas was another member of the literary circle that included Mary Astell, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, and Mary Chudley. Reading through the biographies of these women, one gets a sense of how interconnected English literary lives were at the time. No one was writing in a vacuum, and the sharing of themes and motifs is part of the way their work is a constant, ongoing conversation. In this poem, from 1722, Thomas addresses an absent friend, framing her doubts as an imagined conversation with the gossiping meddler. Clemena If you are indeed the friend you have professed, your kindness now exert with speed, and give me back my rest. Late in our gloomy shade I sat, retired from all domestic care, and though as calm as was the air, yet soon disturbed like that, for while I grasped my precious store and read your last kind letters o'er, the gay Melinda passed along and cried, Oh, where is friendship gone? What makes Eliza look so down when fair Clemena's come to town? Indeed, methinks she's much your friend, so near and neither come nor sent. Nay, prithee, do not turn away, ere you have heard what I can say. Alas, I much lament your case, for haughty Gallia takes your place. Her Clementa gives her heart and leaves you not the smallest part judge with what grief i was possessed how love and anger tore my breast is this said i her kind return for all my tender cares did i for this my life despise and venture it for hers did i for this such frowns endure such hatred to myself procure can can she with her vows expense now make this cruel recompense but when this storm was somewhat laid i fancied that i was betrayed for looking round the nymph was gone and mocked from far my piteous moan twas then you came into my mind so nobly faithful and so kind that I can hardly think it true, but wait to be resolved by you in the seventeenth century. There seemed to be an entire genre of men's poems complaining about how the close friendships of women were shutting them out and making the women unavailable for heterosexual relations. John Hoadley's poem on the friendship of two young ladies is perhaps a remnant of that tradition lingering in the eighteenth century. But in general, male criticism of women's relationships seems to have moved more into the harshly satirical. There is perhaps a sense that the greater public prominence of female friendships has placed them further from reproach, even on the occasions when they make the women disinclined for marriage. Hoadley was better known as a playwright, though making his living as a clergyman, with his work leaning toward pastorals and farce. Many of his plays were written in verse form, Also showing the satirical bent of his talent, he wrote the verses that accompanied Hogarth's famous engravings of A Rake's Progress. In this poem, he first appears to praise the close friendship of two women, then shifts into suggesting that such friendships inherently become rivalries solved by both turning to men for love. Hail, beauteous pair, whom friendship binds in softest yet in strongest ties, soft as the temper of your minds, strong as the luster of your eyes. So Venus's doves in couples flew, and friendly steer their equal course, whose feathers Cupid's shafts supply, and wing them with resistless force. Thus as you move love's tender flame, like that of friendship paler burns, both are divided passion claim, and friends and rivals prove by turns, then ease yourselves, and bless mankind, friendship so cursed no more pursue, in wedlock's rosy bower you'll find the joys of love and friendship too. But women were becoming more forthright about rejecting the idea that marriage was a universal goal or even a necessary evil. The anonymous poem, Chloe to Artemisia, published in 1720, is quite blunt on the subject. Note that the reference here to the sex means the opposite sex, that is, men. While vulgar souls their vulgar love pursue, and in the common way themselves undo, impairing health and fame, and risking life to be a mistress, or, what's worse, a wife, we, whom a nicer taste has raised above the dangerous follies of such slavish love, despise the sex, and in ourselves we find pleasures for their gross senses too refined. Let brutish men, made by our weakness vain, boast of the easy conquest they obtain. Let the poor loving wretch do all she can, and all won't please the ungrateful tyrant man. We'll scorn the monster and his mistress, too, and show the world what women ought to do. Not all women were quite so forthright in their opinions, but marriage was sometimes framed as being in direct rivalry with female friendships. We may recall Catherine Phillips offering similar sentiments. Susanna Highmore Duncombe recounts a series of hazards to the intimate friendship she longs for in To Aspasia from 1751, a poem addressed to the woman she hopes will prove truer than those who came before her. The poem is a bit of an extensive catalog of disrupted friendships, including an explanation of how she won't recount one story as a favor to the sister of the faithless one. Listen for the reference to losing a friend to Hymen, which refers to the god of marriage and not the anatomical feature. Note also the reference in the first verse to pursuing friendship in Diane's Grove, that is, among the followers of the goddess Diana, who rejected marriage. Wisdom, Aspasia, by thy gentle muse, warns me to shun the dangerous paths of love, and rather those of sober friendship choose, with cheerful liberty in Diane's Grove. Yet, led by fancy through deceitful ground oft have i friendship sought but sought in vain unfaithful friends with myrtle wreaths i crowned unpleasing subjects of my plaintive strain in youthful innocence a schoolday friend first gained my sister vows unhappy maid how did i wipe thy tears thy griefs attend and how was all my tenderness repaid No sooner grandeur, love, and fortune smiled than base ingratitude thy heart betrays, that friend forgot who all thy woes beguiled, lost in the sunshine of thy prosperous days. Save me, kind heaven, from smiling fortune's power, and may my wishes never meet success if e'er I can forget one single hour the friend who gave me comfort in distress. Yet friendship's influence I again implored to heal the wounds by disappointment made. Friendship, my soul, to balmy peace restored, and sent a gentle virgin to my aid. Soft, modest, pensive, melancholy, fair, she seemed to love and pining grief a prey, and I saw her fading cheek and feared despair fed on her heart and stole her life away. But ah, how changed my friend, how vain my fears, not death, but hymen stole her from my heart. Another love dispelled her sighs and tears, and fame was left the secret to impart. Not twice the changing moon her course had run since first the pleasing youth was seen and loved. The fair in secret haste he wooed and won. No friend consulted, for no friend approved. Suspense not long my anxious bosom pained. My friend arrived. I clasped her to my breast. I wept. I smiled. Alternate passions reigned. Till she, the sad unwelcome tale, confessed lost to her brother country and to me a stranger wafts her to a foreign shore she travels mountains and defies the sea nor thinks of albion or of stella more sure nature in her weakest softest mold formed my unhappy heart false friendships prey. another story yet remains untold which fond compassion bids me not display the lovely sister of a faithless friend weeping entreats me spare of the recent tale her sighs i hear her wishes i attend and o'er her sister's failings draw the veil this, my success, in search of friendship's grove, where liberty and peace I hoped to find, and softened thus with grief deceitful love, in friendship's borrowed garb attacked my mind. No passion raging like the roaring main, but calm and gentle as a summer sea, meek modesty and virtue in his train, what friendship ought, true love appeared to be. But soon was changed, alas, the pleasing scene, soon threatening storms my timid heart alarmed, and love no more appeared with brows serene, but clothed in terrors and with dangers armed. From these enchanted bowers my steps I turn, and seek from prudence, safety, and repose. Her rigid lessons I resolve to learn and gain that bliss which self approof bestows. Thus, dear Aspasia, my unhappy fate, my heart's first darling schemes all blasted see yet now my bosom glows with hope elate fair friendship's blessings still to find with thee by thee conducted to the realms of peace no more in plaintive strains the muse shall sing henceforth with hymns of praise and grateful bliss the groves shall echo and the valleys ring not all poems of romantic friendship focused only on the spiritual The following three poems blend this theme with expressions of more sensual and erotic joys deriving from those relationships, or at least sought from them. Pauline de Simeon was a French poet, the granddaughter of the famous courtier and correspondent Madame de Sévigné, whose letters she edited for publication. As the two poems of hers that I've included were originally in French, the translations are not metrical. The first, madrigal encodes the homoerotic meaning in a complex set of mythological allusions to the goddess Diana and associated figures. Diana, of course, was not only famously chaste and disdainful of men, but was the center of a number of stories featuring homoerotic relations between women, as discussed in my episode on Diana and Callisto. So when the poet addresses a female subject who has kissed her sweetly and calls her Diana, there is a weight of implication evoked. "'Don't treat me like Apollo,' she says." Diana and Apollo were, of course, siblings, so she's begging, don't kiss me chastely as one would a sibling, but passionately as one would a lover. I'd be happy with Endymion's fate, the poem concludes, referencing the myth of Endymion, who was originally attached to the moon goddess Selene, whose lover he was. Among many variants, the central motif of his myth is that he was cursed or blessed to sleep eternally in order to preserve his life and beauty. As Selenay and Diana were both associated with the moon, Diana was sometimes substituted as Endymion's lover, despite her generally anti-male attitude. Putting all this together, Desimion is addressing a woman and asking, Why do you kiss me like a sister with such sweet kisses? Why do you treat me like a sibling when I want you to treat me like a lover? I've included the original French in the transcript of this show. You kiss me like a sister, kisses filled with sweetness. Yet you must allow me to condemn them, for I'm only mortal, my Diane. Why treat me like Apollo Great? I'd be so happy with Endymion's fate. The second poem from Pauline de Simeon is in the form of a letter to someone addressed in the poem as Corinna, possibly a pseudonym, and in the poem's title as Madame la Marquise de S. Both this and the previous poem are dated seventeen fifteen. The title of this verse indicates that it accompanied a gift of tobacco, and the poem makes a number of connections with gratifying the senses. The poet is self-deprecatingly suggesting that she would not have been asked to satisfy the Marquise's more important longings, despite certain rumors to that effect. The final lines, begging the recipient to trace for me with your hand all of your pleasures, seem superficially to be asking for a letter in return, but raises other images as well. I've not forgotten you chose me to gratify one of the senses that's generally said to be immaterial to life's pleasures. Thus, despite the rumors spread abroad, if you truly had the longing to satisfy them one at all, I think that in this fancy your heart, without a pause, would not have chosen for the task a pitiful friend like me. But you have need of modest size. In you, only the sense of smell is unfulfilled. And yet, do you imagine that my eyes away from you suffer any less? Still, I cannot bear to see you penitent, and will relieve your pain as reward for my tobacco and my care. All I ask, my lovable Corinna, is that your hand sometimes choose to trace for me with tenderness all of your pleasures, all your fine times. If tobacco seems an unusual gift of affection, the following poem by Mary Mathilda Betham catalogues some much more conventional gifts before settling on the gift of a kiss. Betham was a diarist, writer, and miniature painter in the late 18th and early 19th century. She wrote a biographical dictionary of famous women, as well as four books of her poetry. Betham supported herself with her painting and writing, and did not marry. I don't know whether there are any guesses as to whom this Valentine poem was written in 1797. What shall I send my to today, when all the woods attune in love? And I would show the lark and dove that I can love as well as they. I'll send a locket full of hair, but no, for it might chance to lie too near her heart, and I should die of love's sweet envy to be there. A violet is sweet to give, ah stay, she'd touch it with her lips, and after such complete eclipse how could my soul consent to live? I'll send a kiss, for that would be the quickest sent, the lightest born, and well I know tomorrow morn she'll send it back again to me. Go, happy winds, ah, do not stay inabbered of my lady's cheek, but hasten home, and I'll bespeak your services another day. For this next set of verses, I retain my poetic category of The Pangs of Love, with two rather different takes on love gone awry. Anna Seward was a well-known and prolific poet who spent all her life in the relatively rural area of the Peak District, far from the literary circles of London. She was a friend of the Ladies of Llangollen and wrote poems referencing them in their home. Seward rejected marriage, both abstractly and in the form of specific offers. Her romantic relationships were all with women, though her commitment to caring for her father limited how she carried them out. Very notably, she fell in love with a younger woman named Anora Sneed, who lived in their household for a while before marrying and thereby breaking Seward's heart. The following two poems mark the early adoration and the later hurt first elegy written at the seaside and addressed to miss honora snade written around 1780 i write honora on the sparkling sand the envious waves forbid the trace to stay honora's name again adorns the strand again the waters bear the prize away so nature wrote her charms upon thy face the cheeks light bloom the lips in vermilion dye, and every gay and every witching grace that youth's warm hours and beauty's stores supply but time's stern tide with cold oblivion's wave Shall soon dissolve each fair, each fading charm In nature's self so powerful Cannot save her own rich gifts From this o'erwhelming harm Love and the muse can boast superior power Indelible the letters they shall frame They yield to no inevitable hour But will on lasting tablets write thy name The following poem, titled simply To Honora Nade, is only one of many breakup poems Seward wrote about what she considered Snade's betrayal. Some people dwell a bit too long. Honora, should that cruel time arrive when, gainst my truth, thou shouldst my errors poise, scorning remembrance of our vanished joys, when for the love-warm looks in which I would live, but cold respect must greet me, that shall give no tender glance, no kind regretful sighs, when thou shalt pass me with averted eyes, feigning thou seest me not to sting and grieve, and sicken my sad heart, I could not bear such dire eclipse of thy soul cheering rays, I could not learn my struggling heart to tear from thy loved form, that through my memory stays, nor... in the pale horizon of despair endure the wintry and the darkened days." Now we turn to a somewhat more light-hearted and borderline scandalous expression of the pangs of love. The verse has a rather complicated provenance, so forgive me for going into a bit of detail. In the 18th century, feuds between the fans of prominent opera singers were a thing. They'd show up to cheer on their favorite or heckle her rival, The theater managers considered these rivalries great for ticket sales and did nothing to discourage them. The rivalries between the stars themselves might go beyond jockeying for the best roles and even go as far as fisticuffs. One such rivalry was between the up-and-coming Faustina Bordoni and the established star Francesca Cuzzoni, who came to blows during a performance in 1727, a fight that was quickly satirized in Broadsides and even in John Gay's The Beggar's Opera in 1728. The following poem purports to be a letter from Faustina Bordoni to one of her supporters. It can validly be doubted whether Bordoni herself wrote it, particularly given that it seems designed to cast aspersions on her reputation. The original gives the speaker's name as F in one place, but I've supplied the full name as Faustina from the attribution. Elsewhere, the name of the lady to whom the letter is supposedly addressed is left a blank, and there seems to be no good theory as to who might be indicated. I wanted to fill it in with something for the sake of the metrical flow, but the meter in that line is a bit of a mess and seems to call for a single unstressed syllable. So I read joy to the fair blank as joy to the fair one, and we'll leave it at that. There are a number of allusions that may be useful to know. The claim, ladies unpracticed in the art of love, a living erratin in me may prove is a reference to the dialogues of Renaissance author Pietro Aretino, which included discussions of sex between women. The classical pseudonyms Chloe and Thelestris may have been understood by contemporaries as specific women in Bordoni's circle. Thelestris was the name of an Amazon of legend. And the reference toward the end of the poem to Duristanti is to an earlier star soprano who had been supplanted by Bordoni's rival Cuzzone. Condemn not, madam, as I write in haste, my thoughts confused, or any word misplaced, of censoring tongues I scorn, the little spite, in wild disorder, as I love, I write. In haste I write to ease your tortured mind, spite of your jealousy, I still am kind, unspotted as the sun my love shall rise, and soon dispel the fears that cloud your eyes. Let others, for dear scandal, search the town, or with superior fancy choose a gown, others their heads with learned volumes fill, or boast of deeper science at quadrille in the gay dance let other nymphs excel faustina's glory lies in loving well of pleasure all the various modes i know in different degrees its ebb and flow ladies unpractised in the art of love a living eratine in me may prove propitious venus Grant me the power to give joy to the fair one. Tis for her I live. Cease then to let your jealous fancy rove, nor give me such a cruel proof of love. Am I in fault that crowds obsequious bend and rival beauties for my love contend? That fierce Thelestrus has attacked my heart, or gentle Chloe cast a milder dart? To fierce Thelestrus I disdain to yield, and gentle Chloe ne'er shall gain the field. In vain she breathes her passion in my ear, for when you speak I nothing else can hear in vain with transport to my feet she flew all joys are tasteless but what come through you before your fatal face i chanced to see no cynic ever laughed at love like me inconstant as the wind free as the air i ranged from man to man from fair to fair i roved about like the industrious bee first sucked the honey then forsook the tree in Venus's combats I have spent the day, Swiss-like I fought on any side for pay. But now I love, and your bewitching face has well avenged the cause of human race. Do justice to yourself, review your charms, nor fear to see me in another's arms. Have you not beauty equal to your youth? Look in your glass, and then suspect my truth. No passion Tremontaine, in you I've found. By love and gratitude I'm doubly bound. You, first of all, the British fair, declared, I sung unrivaled, ere my voice you heard. By sympathy you felt each charm, each grace, and loved my person ere you saw my face. Nor was I coy or difficult to move when you revealed the story of your love. With such pathetic mirth you played your part and found an easy conquest of my heart. I felt a thrilling joy till then unknown, and loved with ardor equal to your own. Witness the transports of that happy day, when melting in each other's arms we lay, with velvet kiss your humid lips I pressed, and rode triumphant on your panting breast. Thus rode St. George, thus fearless thrust his dart, up to the head in the fell dragon's heart. In ecstasy you cried, what joys are these? Not Durastante's self so well could please. This is no sleepy husband's feeble might, the tasteless tribute of an ill-spent night. Such were our joys. Oh, could they always last but greatest pleasures are the soonest past oh did my power and will in concert move and were my strength but equal to my love the incredulous philosophers should see perpetual motion verified in me as i mentioned earlier if mildly teasing digs at female couples for making themselves unavailable to men show up less often in the 18th century the more vicious attacks on specific women either for a lesbian reputation or using accusations of lesbianism as a weapon, are on the rise. These were often published anonymously, although in some cases the authorship is obvious and undisputed. The anonymously penned The Adulteress, published in 1773, is something of a broad-brush attack on the sexual morals of women in general. Some have identified it as a very loose reworking of Juvenal's Sixth Satire, which is a similar misogynistic catalogue of women's supposed vices. I've included here only two brief excerpts, part of the preface, which compares the decadent present to the solid virtues of the era of Queen Best, that is, Elizabeth I, and then the section discussing homosexuality. There are a couple of disguised personal names, a common technique for dodging libel. Since the specific names only matter to those who know the ins and outs of 18th century British politics, i filled them in to fit the meter, though in one case I believe I've identified the correct person. How better were the matrons of Queen Bess, who suited all their manners to their dress, who breakfasted on beef and drank stout ale, rough as their lord, as honest and as hale. Our sons had then red cheeks and sturdy back, not melted by Cornelis and Almax. Earth never then had known a coxcomb race, then macaronis were not man's disgrace. The sun did ne'er condescend to smile on tiny things like Jamie and Carlyle. Earth's common fruits in markets were exposed, unknown for stalling, commons unenclosed. But when Eliza to the stars withdrew, genius and chastity attended to. With James and Charles rank lechery came in, and virtue then gave place at court to sin. New modes of lust in Charles himself devised, and Rochester both nursed them and chastised. Then did the court chaste marriage rites profane, and purer virtue breathed in Drury Lane women and men in these unnatural times are guilty equal of unnatural crimes woman with woman act the manly part and kiss and press each other to the heart unnatural crimes like these my satire vex I know a thousand Tommies amongst the sex, and if they don't relinquish such a crime, I'll give their names to be the scoff of time. But here, sweet girls, my indignation fires when man with man into the shade retires, and when that justice damns them and their crimes, the noble monsters of these monstrous times repair to majesty and piteous plead a wretch's cause whom virtue deemed to bleed, can beauteous virtue show her heavenly face when Jones is pardoned, who is held in place? Hear me, sweet sheeny virtue, hear my prayer, make. Love and modesty they constant care. Diana, cull wreath of roses fair and place the posy in the poet's hair. I feel throughout this meretricious strain a hollowed virtue trill from vein to vein. When fashion suffers turpitudes to grow, honor and truth both cordially allow. That even body is a virtue now. While the adulteress takes aim at entire swaths of society and as much at effeminate men as at Tommies. William King penned a much more pointed satire in Revenge at a Specific Woman. The Duchess of Newburgh, he claimed, owed him several thousand pounds, but he lost a lawsuit to try to obtain the funds. Frustrated with more formal methods, King wrote a very long, convoluted, satirical poem, densely packed with obscure references to contemporary figures and their scandals, which featured the Duchess in the form of a promiscuous, pansexual witch named Myra. If the initial version in 1732 were not enough, William King published an expanded version four years later and reprinted it again in 1754. From a historical point of view, the poem is valuable in demonstrating that the term lesbian was used in English in a sexual sense at least as early as 1732. Though one shouldn't put too much reliance on the poem as evidence of cultural practice, it depicts a lesbian cultural tradition that envisions women who had a distinct and stable sexual orientation toward women. The problem with trying to include even a sample from this poem in the podcast is that any brief excerpt is incoherent, while any extensive passage is going to include material that is not merely homophobic but also packed with slurs involving racial and religious groups just for a start. So I will leave you with the knowledge of its existence and a serious content warning if you choose to look into it. One rather curious genre of poetry that appears in the 18th century perhaps in parallel with the greater openness of sexual satires in general, are works about dildos. It is difficult to determine the genuine place of dildos in female same-sex erotics in this or other historic eras, largely because the records that obsess over the use of an artificial phallus may be treating it more as a symbol than a reality. There is a running theme throughout Western history that sex between women is inherently less satisfying because only penetrative sex is the real thing. The use of a dildo raises anxieties that perhaps even that handicap can be worked around, making men entirely obsolete with regard to women's pleasure. So to some extent, anxiety about dildos stands in for a shift in understanding that perhaps women don't actually need men to have completely satisfying sex lives. This anxiety rarely stands alone, but is typically accompanied by an accusation that if men were doing their proper job as lovers, then women wouldn't look elsewhere. In both the 17th and 18th centuries, satirical works combine accusations of male effeminacy and rampant sodomy with the vision of women consequently turning to each other or to dildos or both as a consequence. The anonymous epic poem, The Sapphoan, published in 1735, is an extended exploration of this theme. Following the naming conventions of the day, the title should be read as The Sappho Club or The Sappho Circle. The appearance of the name Myra in the text suggests a connection to William King's poem, The Toast, raising the possibility that King was the author of this poem as well. The poem contains extensive descriptions of sexual encounters and techniques between women, but is clearly intended as a satirical attack either on lesbian sex in general or on a specific woman whose connection to the poem is no longer obvious to us. The general plot of the poem is thus. The Greek gods have been warned that the women of Olympus are sexually unsatisfied because the gods are all dallying with boys instead of paying attention to them. The mortal poet Sappho shows up and explains to the goddesses that there are other ways to get satisfaction. An extensive catalog of techniques and implements are discussed before Sappho settles down to displaying and demonstrating an ivory dildo. There is an underlying message that all of these delights are less satisfactory than sex with men were that only available. The poem begins with this warning to contemporaries before moving on to the classical setting. Swains of Britannia's happy gladsome isle who wait submissive on the fair one's smile, and all the soothing arts of lovers try in hopes to make the cruel nymph comply. No, whilst you idle thus away your time, women in secret joys consume their prime. Some favorite maid or handy young coquette steals the rich prize you vainly strive to get. Of them be cautious. But the artful prude watch most, for she will thoughtless girls delude at break of day when you have often mourned your tender billy-doo unread returned, and thought some happier rival in the place, when you expected the long-wished embraced, your lovely nymph in private quenched her flame with some experienced, well-known, crafty dame who knew the softest way to reach her heart and proudly vied with nature in her art. Much later in the poem, Sappho arrives to save the day cease cease she cries your needless search suspend well versed in love let me the conflict end a curious artist that through nature pride has every wish our hearts could form supplied He gives us man without the plague of males which will untired remain when nature fails the conscious blush must rise whene'er i think what arts we use when drooping standards sink in vain the lily hand with genial fire strives with fresh heat the mortals to inspire when round their limbs robust we gently twine and fondly hope to make the centers join repugnant to our joys the ruler dead hangs like a faded flower its livid head nor can our heaving breasts new strength excite the darting tongue no longer can invite when we to rushing joy go boldly on supine and indolent they tumble down balked in our bliss we to reproaches fly and noise and tumult for kind signs supply no more we clasp him in our tender arms no more his colder breast our bosom warms who then such frail felicity would trust or value those imperfect efforts most when solid joys are always at command and court the pressure of your eager hand For this the burnished ivory rears its head, waiting for coral of a lovely red, or if too rude the polished engine seems, the velvet covering keeps it from extremes, its shape complete, nor can ye aught despise, for to your choice they shall adapt the size, she said, and with a more majestic mien, produced at once the wonderful machine, not more the Greeks rejoiced when Ilium's fate, which on its stolen palladium did await, the sly Ulysses cautiously drew out and charmed the wondering chiefs and vulgar rout. With rapture all beheld it and applause in Ios loud the silent image draws. Immediate trial is the next demand. The trial claims a gently trembling hand. Kind Sappho soon administers her aid and drives the dart into the yielding maid. Fond of the scheme they strive to improve its use and each will the most pleasing method choose. The poem continues on at some length and ends by suggesting that the use of such implements damages the health and those who use it will end in regret. Another poem, Monsur Thing's Origin, published in 1722, has similar underlying themes, if fewer classical allusions. It personifies the dildo as a foreign lover bringing new sexual practices to England and spreading them throughout the world. You may be amused that when Munsoor Thing first arrives in London, he finds lodgings at a toy shop in Covent Garden. There is a series of anecdotes describing various categories of women using the device, though only one anecdote involves a female couple. I've only included this excerpt from the poem. The reference to two cows playing in a field suggests that the author was familiar with same-sex mounting behavior in domestic animals clear as Munsur was and free to range his tour he took towards the great exchange ingratiating himself into the favour of milliners by his complacent behaviour he pitched his tent between two partners Indeed, he took them not to be whores, but like two cows a-playing in a field, while the one rid the other seemed to yield, this was itself complete encouragement to show what they'd be at and their intent, fully explained what it was that they meant. One of the girls tied Munsoor to her middle to try if she the secret could unriddle. She acted man, being in a merry mood, striving to please her partner as she could, and thus they took it in their turns to please, their lustful inclinations to appease. But now it's time to turn away from body satire to conclude our poetic tour with The Triumph of Love. Many of the poems in the romantic friendship genre might easily fit here. I've chosen a work by one member of perhaps the most famous female couple in 18th century England, Sarah Ponsonby, the junior member of The Ladies of Llangollen. The poem, dated 1789, is simply titled Song. Although the poem contrasts vulgar eros with love, The sense of being overpowered by desire is reminiscent of Sappho's work. By vulgar eros long misled, I called thee tyrant, mighty love. With idle fear my fancy fled, Nor e'en thy pleasures wished to prove. Condemned at length to wear thy chains, Trembling I felt and owed thy might, But soon I found my fears were vain, Soon hugged my chain and found it light.